I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Today's guest is Alex Blanco of Vantage Insurance. Alex has been dealt a rare hand in the insurance world because he's had the chance to build something from scratch with no legacy. What would you do if you could start a specialist insurance business from a clean piece of paper and in a pretty favourable insurance market environment? What lines would you start with? How would you use technology? Would you stick to the ENS market or would you add admitted capabilities? Would you go international? These are the core questions at the heart of this podcast, and Alex puts his multi-decade executive experience to providing the answers. Alex is a great guest, and this is a really robust and far-reaching conversation, and I can highly recommend a listen. Enjoy the podcast. Alex, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Mark, thank you so very much. I really appreciate the opportunity that you've given me to talk about Vantage. Oh, Great. Why don't you just quickly introduce yourself, give us a bit of a run through through your career to date, and then how you came to work at Vantage. I've been in the industry for almost 30 years. I first started at KPMG right after graduating college. And after a short stint at KPMG, I started as an ENO underwriter at Reliance National. From there, I had tenure at Zurich, Liberty Mutual, and Marsh in progressively senior roles. Then I spent almost 16 years at Excel, now Axa Excel, managing professional lines as the COO of professional. That would be the non-public DNO group. So that's ENO and private DNO lines. And then the last 18 months of my tenure at Axa Excel, I was CEO of Specialties Americas. I started with Vantage in November of 2021, so a little over a year now, as CEO of insurance. You really are steep in U.S. insurance history. Reliance yes. is a name from the past that some of our younger listeners won't know, of, but well, I know. Robin will not recognize. I would agree. <laughs> so as I think about my tenure here, Vantage is a well-capitalized, true insurance company with a clean balance sheet. And we're privileged to have recognized industry leaders in its ranks. And for me, the chance to join an entity designed by underwriters for underwriters, that purposely built entity was a very compelling reason to join. And one of the top reasons many of my colleagues had are, are joining us as well. It's fascinating with the market you're playing in, the US excess and surplus lines market. Well, also you've just bought an admitted carrier, so I'm going to ask you about that a bit later on. But obviously the core focus would be specialty within the ENS market. Yep. What's the temperature in that market? It's undergone such tremendous growth in the last few years. How much of it for a start do you think is cyclical and how much of it is secular? Great question. There will always be cyclical forces driving placement outcomes in all lines of business. As I see it, the ENS market is no different. Think about the segments, the exposure, trend, and capacity are some of the factors that contribute to those forces. So if you think about hurricane losses, higher headline inflation, a court system that's been in suspended animation during the pandemic will continue to impact that industry and the view of the underlying exposures And as I see it, it will further impact the sector for an indeterminate period of time. If I unpack this a little bit more, there was some recent commentary about has the ENS market passed its golden age? Yeah, it was an analyst note relating to the upcoming Skyward IPO, which obviously gave a window of people's views on that market. Right. So it was an interesting comment, and it made me think about that a lot. And as I see it, the ENS market continues to be resilient. It's in a good place, right? Yes, we are witnessing some rate stabilization, but we're equally experiencing a strong pipeline of opportunities 
So I appreciate and understand the market forces currently underway, but do sincerely believe that the structural changes that have taken place in the ENS space will continue to prove relevant in the ENS market. So if I take a step back, the world is certainly getting riskier, as I see it. The changes, whether it's geopolitical forces, cyber, headline inflation, social inflation, with all of that, the ENS market is primed to respond to those challenges. It was built in a fashion to give flexibility in their inherent offering. So obviously, when things change, when there's more risk, market tends to focus on the ENS because of that adaptability and flexibility. If we think about the first half of 2022, there was a 32% premium increase over the same period last year, and the number of transactions, almost 10% increase based upon the reports that were issued by state circles line stamping offices. There's also a tremendous amount of talent in the ENS space that is effectuating solutions on both the brokerage and underwriting side. So from my perspective, I do believe we're going to see more resiliency within the ENS market and more to come. So still growth to come, you'd say? I would say still growth to come, absolutely. And of course, that is compound growth. We've had a good three years. Yes, absolutely. Rate accretion with more to come. So is it fair to say we might not be in a golden age, but how often are we ever in a golden age? It would be folly for me to suggest when that golden age occurred and how long it's lasting, but I will tell you that it continues on, that the environment for ENS, ENS product, ENS talent still is very vibrant. And I suppose it doesn't need to be golden. It just needs to be good. And, and good enough to make the right returns, right? Well stated, yes. So I mentioned before about you buying an admitted lines carrier. So what's the rationale behind that? Is it partly you positioning yourself ahead of maybe the way that the cycle goes, that the ENS grows and waxes and wanes with the market cycle? In part, yes, Mark. We're building a specialty reinsurer and insure, full stop. Yep. As such, we have to continue to build and develop products that's going to inure to our franchise value, which may require admitted capabilities. So where admitted optionality is needed, such as in our financial line products in the US, our DNO lines, you yep. want to create that viable trading platform for all circumstances. So as you aptly noted, as things change and if there are migratory patterns to admitted markets, we want to make sure that we're primed to make that offering available. It is something that operationally we have witnessed to be an extremely important part of our conversation and of our future. So it's about distribution, really. And effectively, if you need to access that client, you're going to access them in the way that is going to be most agreeable to them. And if that requires admitted lines, you want to be able to offer that. To an extent, we want to be agnostic to the platform. What we're not agnostic is to the solutions we're providing to our clients. So if our clients require admitted capabilities, we certainly want to have that available to them. Right. Does that entail a huge amount more work, getting those products to be registered and approved in 50 different states and with different regulators, and of course, having all those policy wordings poured over by regulators, et cetera? Absolutely. My experience over the last 30 years is that you can never be terribly surprised on how long it takes for your products to get admitted in certain states, which I will not mention on this podcast. But I think most of the insurance professionals that would be listening to this call could certainly name them top of mind of where some jurisdictions may take longer than others. Because the product you want to offer in admitted lines is going to be the same product or similar product you were going to offer in ENS lines, and therefore they're not going to be just some standard ISO form. Yes, there are some distinguishing characteristics that we would offer on admitted versus a non-admitted. But generally speaking, if I think about what we would offer keenly, they would be similar is how I would describe it from a non-admitted to an admitted standpoint. 
And in terms of the build-out advantage, sitting outside here, looking onwards a couple of years into this growth story, is it right to say that your build-out is still ongoing with this admitted part? Or you feel like you're ready, you've got critical mass now, you've got what you need, you've got the team? (laughs) Unequivocally, we are in build-out mode. I would argue every entity, despite its tenure in the market, has a component of build-out. We just happen to be a very young company, so our build-out is more pronounced and routine. But we're most certainly in build-out mode for our insurance operations. As I mentioned earlier, we're building the specialty insurer. So we're going to be adding products that enable us to distinguish ourselves as such. So again, as a specialty entity, there are going to be future products that we think about. We do a fairly good due diligence in terms of what we'd like to do and how we'd like to do it. So that's going to be in 2023, for instance, there are going to be a number of initiatives that we have in terms of building out further capabilities and further products. So when you're building the brand of advantage in the marketplace, what do you want it to be known for? Is it that specialty? Is it that ability that you are able to offer the cover that a lot of your peers won't offer? So as I think about it, Mark, you may be familiar with our tagline, but if not, it's to see risk differently. So as I think of it, I would like Vantage to be known as a profitable risk solution provider to our clients that leverages data and technology via its talent. That's a broad statement. But at its essence, what we're saying is that we are investing in our people, in our technology, in our data, so we can have relentlessly curious underwriters figuring out solutions for our clients. It may be in areas that others run away from. It may be in areas that are well represented by other markets. But if I think about the differentiation that we're trying to provide, it's the empowerment to our underwriters to make decisions using tools that will allow them to make right decisions, not only for ourselves, but for our clients. So that entails also, as you aptly mentioned, there may be opportunities for us to enter into markets or coverages based upon data and analysis that we provide to make better judgments. So again, generally speaking, as I think about it, it's trying to view the risks that are presented to us in a different fashion. So again, is that the sort of pitch to the brokers to say, hey, Is there a problem in the market? If you can come with the right sort of data, we can work on this together on solving this problem that is a problem for your clients. We are certainly interested if our broker partners have empirical data or proprietary data that they're willing to share to allow us to evaluate the risk. Absolutely. We find it a privilege and a priority on our part to be the purveyors of that information, to gather the data, to scrape data, to get that information in order to make those evaluations. But again, any business partner that presents an opportunity for us that we can evaluate empirically, stochastically, we're certainly interested in seeing if there's a solution that we can effectuate. You advantage, you see yourself now as being this modern new specialty insurer as wanted to go and get that data yourself. Say maybe there's a segment of the market, a line of business or an industry vertical that's got a problem, and you will try and source that data yourselves without relying on brokers to come and source it for you. Do you see it as partly your added value to go and get that data from third parties, for example, and then come up with a solution? I believe it's our priority to do so. That is where our distinction and differentiation will come from. We've hired a wonderful roster of data and analytic professionals that are routinely and regularly finding data, scraping data, searching data, normalizing that data in order for us to start using those data sets for evaluation. So again, I don't want to dismiss the fact that the broker community has a lot of data too, that they have been sharing with us on certain industry verticals or from a client perspective. So we certainly use that in terms of our evaluation. But again, if I play back 
what we're trying to do organizationally is that we think about it from both a tech enablement and a data enablement standpoint. And there is a cross-section, obviously, as you become richer in that environment, that as we enable our professionals with better technology to be more efficient, at the same time, we want to data enable so that they are, in essence, getting the tools necessary in order for them to be better risk evaluators, risk selectors, and to a certain extent, modulating on price. When we have both enabled to the underwriting community, what we find is a very empowered and nimble community to be able to get answers to our brokers. Now, if we buttress that with getting more data from our brokers, all the better. But you'd always expect your underwriters to have their own in-house validated data-centric view of that risk before the broker comes. And if that broker's data then validates what you already thought about that risk, then so much the better, one presumes. Correct. Now, look, we're a young company too, Mark, so I'm not going to suggest we have all the industry empirical data that grows. And there's certainly no paucity of data available. If you think about the exponential growth of data and data access, we certainly in a golden age, if we could harken back to that earlier phrase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Data. Just as a kind of base question, what sort of scale have you managed to achieve to date, say in GWP and headcount, for example, as well? And what sort of target do you have that might, in your mind, would say we're hitting critical mass or something that's approaching critical mass? Well, if I may, I'd like to pivot to another point, but I'll, I'll try to address it as much as possible. As we sit here today, we are proudly a 230 plus member firm. What I think I'd rather address is what we've created so far. We've created our specialty U.S. and Bermuda platform. So we have a construction vertical. Yep. We have political risk and credit. We have excess casualty. We have healthcare practice. We have our DNO, which is our management liability and financial institutions practice. We have our ENO practice. And we have our cyber practice. These are all individual risk platforms that have been tilted up in the last 18 months or so. And we've also created MGA relationships in new product areas, such as transactional liability. And we further have more plans to build more products, as I mentioned earlier in 2023, some of which will be individual risk, and some of it will be, as I just mentioned about MGAs, some MGA activity to create more opportunity for us in 2023. It's probably a good time to ask you about this, about MGAs. What's your kind of strategy towards MGAs? Is it when an MGA opportunity comes your way, do you back things that are adding some new skill that you don't actually have yourself? Or is it more generalized? Is it sort of, well, hang on, it'll give me a bit more volume and it'll give me more diversification as well. well what's your kind of playbook, your rule book when an MGA comes to you? So as I mentioned, MGA, MGUs continue to be part of our overall strategy advantage. We've partnered with MGAs to, to capture market segments. So maybe to answer your question, such as SME, small business. Yeah. Or there's a particular expertise such as transactional liability. So the emergence of MGAs has been, a, I think, a function of talent migrating from the influx of capital funding in that space. MGAs are going to serve a critical role to our industry, and they're certainly serving a role in our ecosystem and evolution. But as I see it about playbooks specifically, typically the way we look at MGAs is, is there a unique expertise in that particular area that we cannot solve for in a reasonable time frame? So access to market in that regard is one checkpoint in terms of how we think about MGAs. Does it have a unique distribution or access to a segment of the market that we do not have access to presently because of our own operational modality? So I think about smaller transaction risks such as SME business. So ENO, small ENO SME business, 
that may be better served using MGAs versus creating more operational headcount or what have you within the organization. And then the last, is there something about speed to market that this MGA produces? So is there some technology, some interesting angle that they have accessed that sometimes first adopters offer a lot more leverage? So those are some of the reasons why we enter into MGA opportunities, simply because they present a unique opportunity that we can't necessarily manifest in a reasonable and efficient timeframe. Obviously, there seems to be a lot more new MGA opportunities to be offered and to back this state of the market, partly because of this boom in what we've seen, these enabling organizations, hybrid carriers, whatever you would like to call them. Right. What do you think is behind that trend? It's quite interesting. I'd love to have your take on it because it's something I've been asking everybody for the last 18 months or two years. As billions of dollars seem to be now rooted through these hybrid carriers, whereas let's say five years ago, you know, you only had a couple of fronting carriers and that was it. Mark, I'm wondering if it's chicken or egg at this point. MGA valuations are relatively high. So I think that has caused capital markets or capital funding to address that in a real form. So the hybrid MGA, MGA, I think that's part of the formulation and increase of that kind of vogue structure. I do think that that's going to be in the market for a while. As I mentioned earlier, there's a migration of talent. Talent may wonder, okay, I've worked for a certain insurance company a period of time. I want to be more entrepreneurial in nature. So an MGA certainly offers that opportunity. Think about the industry veterans that have been joining some of the MGA ranks. There's reasons for it and not to psychoanalyze, but I think there is a part of this that I'm a talented professional. I've been working for an insurance company for a certain number of years. I think it's time for me to venture out and see what I can do in a more equity-based role, if I can put it in that context. And I suppose it's just good for you guys, because when you see something entrepreneurial, genuinely exciting, doing something slightly differently in a different way and adding skills and distribution that you haven't currently got, then I suppose it's an easy thing to back, I suppose. Alignment matters. And you'll hear that from every underwriter. So as an underwriter, we're underwriting the MGA, we're underwriting the underlying risks. But the vast majority of the due diligence is first underwriting the MGA. And within underwriting the MGA, you want to make sure there's full alignment. And full alignment, it doesn't start with what what does my profit share look like? It's really, how can I manage this portfolio so that there are returns for the seating company, for the entity that is insuring these risks. So when it starts with alignment, and if there's clear alignment, that creates a great opportunity to partner with these MGAs. Is it anything that might appeal to you as an entity, you know, with all your licenses, could you become one of these fronting carriers or have a division that does that? There's certainly optionality within our organization to do so. At the present time, we are very proud to be an asset-based entity insurer. So Like I said, I I like the optionality. So if something does come up that makes it interesting, remit to do so, we will certainly consider it. Nothing is in the plans at the moment. You mentioned cyber there. And obviously cyber, for many insurers, that has been a class that has been quite natural for them to use to access that business via MGAs because of the expertise. Right. You've decided to do that yourself. So what sort of style of a cyber insurer are you going to be? It seems to be that the best practice as described in the market, as it has developed in the last three or four years, seems to be that if you're going to go into cyber, you need to become a full service kind of operation, cooperating with the client, helping risk management before they have any problems, being kind of live with them all the time, alerting them to new threats that are just around the corner that your client may not be aware of yet. And then, of course, if there is an incident being all over it, 
like a rash with engineers and IT people all over the place and forensic people. Is that the way you're going to play it? There's a lot to unpack there, Mark. First and foremost, our cyber strategy started with our talent. It was hiring industry experts that have demonstrated in their history, prudent underwriting and risk management. So that for me was the table stake. And we're privileged to have hired two industry veterans, one from AxXL, one from CNA, and we're very proud to have them. They're really moving in a nature that I think is going to be very, very positive for us in the future. Though formulaic in nature, we do believe that the pre and post services are also going to be table stakes for the cyber industry. Yeah. Our strategy, which addresses multiple segments of the industry, whether it's the SME, the middle market, and the large, will be tailored to our view of the current and developing market. While currently we're really only an excess market for cyber, writing primary insurance is going to be on the horizon. So as part of that offering, we're definitely contemplating those suite of risk management, loss prevention services to be on that offer. Yep. Those services are generally not included in the excess market as the primary carriers offer those. So just a couple of things is that so Vantage has launched its cyber offering in the large account. So the over billion revenue on an excess basis. Over the past few years, that large account space where customers are buying hundreds of millions of dollars of capacity has been very disrupted. Capacity yep. shrank as a result of carriers re-underwriting their portfolios, mostly due to the significant uptick, as you're probably aware of, these ransomware claims. So Vantage is bringing much needed capital and capacity to that space. The experienced team that we do have that we brought on board has been quickly able to leverage broker and client relationships because of the pedigree of the people that we brought in to help solve problems caused by this massive market disruption the past couple of years. And, you know, it is very true that the cyber market has moved towards leveraging technical cyber risk management concepts and risk engineering in analyzing underlying exposures. Part of that equation, and this is going back to our earlier comments, is utilizing third-party data and tools that provide underwriters with the outside-in view of company cyber risk. So if you think about threat vectoring and vulnerability posturing, these are things that are becoming more table stake too. We're using two of those tools right now in our underwriting process, and we're going to continue to leverage both our internal development and our external data in building that portfolio. That's great. No, thanks for that, Alex. That's good detail. So you're in the excess space at the moment, but at some point, if you do move closer down to the primary, then you know that you probably have to bring a more full service type style of operation. Right. What is happening in the cyber market at the moment? Are the loss trends stabilizing right now? Obviously, we've had the whole ransomware kind of epidemic. It seems anecdotally, the last few cyber people I spoke to said that things are sort of coming under control now, more or less. We're still witnessing significant positive rate movement in the market, albeit it's slowing down. There are pockets of lost trend stabilization, but I think you need to be prudent on determining the starting point of the trend and the imputed impact year over year. So prior perceived events such as Pecho or potential of government-sponsored attacks, et cetera, you should make that part of the evaluation. So if carriers are evaluating lost trends in an artificially lower starting point, they would typically witness further lost trend inflation rather than stabilization. So I think there's a little bit of where you start from and what you perceive it to be now. So the cyber market, though, continues to be one of the most dynamic areas of insurance, and I don't see that changing anytime in the near or midterm. So while the market has been disrupted by ransomware claims over the past couple of years, 
the market continues to grow. There's new buyers. Premiums are increasing at the same time as the number of buyers continues to increase. So it presents us as underwriters with a tremendous amount of opportunity. So while the past few years has been painful for underwriters and brokers and buyers, it has been a tremendous learning opportunity for everyone too. So we can't dismiss the fact that the heart market has made it very difficult for placement. It certainly has created an environment where that tri-party broker, underwriter, client are learning a lot more. Market participants are much better today, I would argue, in understanding and managing cyber risk than they were even three years ago. So as a result, insured losses, meaning losses by those who purchase insurance versus those who don't, has gone down materially to the point where the market, again, is profitable. So I think the market has gotten a lot more sophisticated with its understanding and approach of those underlying risks. And I think while competition will certainly return, I don't see some of the naive practices that we saw prior to 2020. And in terms of capacity, do you think capacity is returning so that those clients can get the sort of limits that they would like to buy? I think it's getting closer to it, but I do believe there's still some capacity constraints in the market on certain risks. I think other risks, cleaner risks that have operated over the cycle very profitably, I think they can return to getting capacity that they need, but there's still some capacity restrictions on other classes. Obviously, we're in a really hard reinsurance market for a long time, and obviously with a group as well positioned as Vantage. I'd like to ask you, Alex, how that's been affecting your business planning. Is it the sort of thing you can get on the phone to the head office and say, hey guys, you know, what are we going to do? If our own treaties are under a huge amount of pressure, could you use your own capital? That way, it must be an interesting matrix of decisions that you've got available to you as a group right now. But how is it affecting you? Because it's tough for everybody as we come into these 1-1 renewals and no one really seems to know quite where they stand at the moment. I'll be curt and succinct with my comments on this one. It's important for the entire industry to have a healthy primary reinsurance retro market dynamic for long-term sustainability. I think that's the short answer to that question. What I really want is really to talk to you about the importance of what we're building and how we're building it. And we could certainly, and I know we're going to be talking about talent at some point, but again, just to reiterate, in terms of how the reinsurance market has affected our business planning, look, I think being an insurance professional, I know the long-term import of having a proper, long-term, sustainable reinsurance market for us as a reinsurer also for Vantage. Obviously, the hardest part of the hard reinsurance market is property cat. Reinsurers around the world have had enough of taking losses, really thinking about climate change being absolutely real and not being anything theoretical with so many major losses year after year. Everybody wants to reduce their ultimate net cat exposure. That's going to have a knock-on effect into the property insurance market next year with anything cat exposed, one would imagine, as retentions on the reinsurance side are rocketing, maybe doubling. Who quite knows where they're going to end up? Obviously, you don't seem to have a pure property operation. Are you tempted to say, well, this might be a place to come and look at risk differently and say, you know, at these prices, perhaps, or if the putative prices that may be around this time next year, is it worth building a team to be able to pick and choose some of those prime, but potentially property cat exposed property risks? So shorter answer is we're definitely evaluating property exposure as we speak, but it is also a dynamic and rapidly evolving space. We do have deep expertise in our property cat reinsurance group. So what I would suggest, and here's a little plug, maybe for another podcast, I think my colleague, Chris McCune, who runs our reinsurance business, could be a next guest to talk a little bit more about cat exposed property business. Absolutely. 
we'll leave it to those guys is what you're saying. Yes, you got it. Quite right. In this interesting market, there's a huge amount of, particularly as a lot of capitalists running away from property cat risk, it seems to be quite keen to embrace casualty risk that has produced pretty good results over the last few years. And are you seeing any kind of knockover effect? So we've seen anecdotally DNO coming off. DNO's had a fantastic run, but some of those rates really coming off and actual real competition reasserting itself as some of that capacity wants to put itself to good use. And of course, has probably been given the green light by headquarters, by the senior boards to say, look, if it's not property cat exposed, it's fine. So you know, I believe the question is about, is there a knockdown effect on casualty lines? Well, a little bit. And also generally in casualty, are we starting to say we're coming off from that, let's say that golden age from about this time last year or the year before? I would say absolutely. We're, we're seeing rate modulating. So not as many spiky rate increases that we're seeing. We are seeing a tremendous amount of opportunity in all of our lines of business, whether it's healthcare, ENO, cyber, excess casualty, construction, political risk and credit. And the vast majority continue to see positive rate movement generally. The outlier, as you mentioned, is DNO. So at the present moment, we are seeing the rate decline, but we continue to be bullish on the profitability of that sector because if we think about the overall results, the rate adequacy of that portfolio is still well above target for the industry. Now, we will be prudent in our underwriting view. I think every DNO underwriter is going to have to have a think about what 2023 holds, if capital markets continue to be constrained, then there's less IPO, less SPAC, DSPAC, then it becomes the basis of, okay, what is the portfolio that we're addressing and how much of that is going to be rate adequate, but continue to have rate decline. I think that is one sector that we're going to continue to see a little bit more pressure. But I also believe that the market at the end of 2021 had a particular expectation based upon how things were progressing. And then their budgets were considering what the market was doing. And then 2022 came and everyone was shocked by the level of competition found in 2022. So 2022 became somewhat of a learning environment for DNO underwriters that, okay, our budgets for 2021 were probably overinflated. We're going to be a little bit more conservative in 2023. So I do see 2023 not being as excessive in terms of rate decline or aggressive rate change, if you will. But we're still very bullish on our DNO simply because of the rate adequacy that we see in the portfolio. So with hindsight, then maybe it just slightly overshot that 2020 time. Yeah. And again, as I mentioned earlier, I think part of it is also there was a view on the trended IPO SPAC opportunities that manifest themselves in 21 that simply just did not materialize in 2022. I mean, the market's closed, isn't it, effectively? That's right. Excellent. When we're talking about build-out, obviously, we'd see you as very much as a US-focused business. At some point in a business maturity, sometimes international expansion starts to become on the agenda. Do you think that would ever be on the agenda? Will you always be a US-only focused business? So we're focusing on our U.S. and Bermuda operations today. So given that we're trying to grow our existing products and building new products, but that being said, we're not shutting the door on future expansion, but there are no plans at the moment. We've already spoken about technology and your focus on data and trying to give yourself an edge on the intellectual property side of things to really understand risk better than anybody else and to come with solutions. How else do you do? Obviously, you're legacy free. Many of your peers are not. Do you see technology also as a way of getting an expense advantage over your competitors? 
So having no legacy technology has been one of the major benefits that Vantage has experienced. We're building for purpose and suitability, which means we're engaging with our stakeholders, whether it's underwriting, claims, finance, actuarial, et cetera, to frame this technological platform that delivers that efficient and comprehensive manner to transact in business. We also want, as I mentioned earlier, to be data enabled, which is embedded in our technology enablement. So our expectation is that we should create operational efficiencies with technology that's going to derive expense benefit from doing so. So in short, yes, we do believe we're going to gain advantage by the manner to which we're enabling our underwriters with technology. It is a journey though, Mark. Not having legacy technology is great. Not having legacy technology means you have to build for purpose, which takes time and it's iterative. But we certainly see the journey there to create those efficiencies. Do you find that you have to build a lot of your own bespoke stuff still, or are there lots of things off the shelf and probably sitting in the cloud, hopefully? It's all in the cloud and it's a little of both with the preference being if we can build for purpose that allows our underwriters to transact efficiently, intelligently, and comprehensively, then yeah, that would be more the build part of it. There are buy options that we can have and we've used some of that. So you're building a fully digital insurer, fully data enabled. Others are taking that to its logical conclusion to say that then the underwriting itself could be digitized. And we've seen algorithmic underwriting on a follow basis in the London market. What's your view of that? You always want to end with a human underwriter making an underwriting decision, maybe being bionically enhanced by all of those data feeds and scoring and other things that would come in and triage and other things that might focus their day and make them more productive and not waste their time on business they're very unlikely to win or business that's underpriced or that kind of stuff. What's your view of it? Do you think you, there is a space for algorithmic underwriting? Um, where would that line be drawn? Yeah, great question, Mark. So we're using an assortment of algorithmic tools with emphasis on the word tools that'll inform our underwriters, whether it's embedded in our healthcare, our DNO, and or our construction unit, just to mention a couple of them. The notion is that we build models, whether they're full-blown predictive models or what I would consider light models. These are tools that will support underwriters in risk evaluation, risk selection, and pricing. As we build out those capabilities, there will be an opportunity to assess if there are universal model characteristics that can be applied across multiple coverages or industries. So if we think about it, we have a DNO risk, are there universal characteristics that might make it a good excess casualty risk, and so on and so forth. That's where I see a lot of effort and talents being devoted in terms of those unique bespoke and then how it looks like from an industry and how we can think about it from a coverage perspective. But fundamentally, our core product set will continue to use talent to differentiate our results. So it will be tools that we will empower underwriters to make decisions. So it's much more about giving them the tools to say, look, we think this is a 57 out of 100. So maybe it's a kind of bit marginal one. And this other one's an 83. So look at the 83 first and that kind of thing. Sort of something that's going to help an underwriter become more productive, help an underwriter make better decisions, that kind of thing, but rather than replacing the underwriter's decision-making process completely. Well, we may also, and we're going to talk about talent, I know at some point, I also believe we're going to allow our underwriters be portfolio managers, such that discrete decisions they make about individual accounts, they will have a view on how those decisions impact their own portfolios, such that if they understand their business well enough, and if we bin the business in deciles or quintiles, 
they can understand the disposition of their portfolio and say, well, I just renewed just to make it very specific. I just renewed this account. How does it affect the rest of my portfolio? Is it a good guy or is it a bad guy? Does it influence the outcome of the overall rate adequacy of my portfolio? So in essence, we've just promoted everyone from a long underwriter to a portfolio manager by the use of these tools. That's really interesting. So someone could say, I've renewed this big renewal, and I know it's significant renewal because it's one of the largest ones I've just done. And if I have a good outcome on that, I'm actually increased the theoretical profitability of my portfolio going forward, and I should give myself a pat on the back, that kind of thing. That's right. That's right. That's going to be really interesting. Once you're giving people all this knowledge, how is it going to change their behaviors? Hopefully in a good way, right? It should. And many underwriters, and I'm sure the vast array of insurance professionals that you've interviewed When it comes to the subject matter, adoption matters a lot. Underwriters have presumed corollaries given their history and business. And once you start introducing multivariate or information that could challenge those corollaries, it takes a while to adopt a mindset that, hey, maybe it is important, maybe having a different perspective, maybe having unique characteristics that are different from characteristics or information that I would generally receive from an application might have relevance in terms of correlation to risk. So adoption definitely matters. The outcome is going to matter equally. So if you have an underwriter that has started from the beginning in terms of integrating a model of sorts, understands the process, adoption becomes a lot greater at the end because they've been fully aware and participating in the process. Well, Alex, you should be really happy now because we are finally going to talk about talent. You've been, Fantastic. You've been, you've been itching to talk about this. I have. I have. Well, I don't know about you. Every time I log on to LinkedIn first thing in the morning, it becomes quite exhausting at the moment. It's probably the greatest I've ever seen. I had to spend the first half an hour of every day congratulating all sorts of people on getting promotions, but obviously involving moving from one place to another and probably giving their previous manager a headache of how to replace them. It seems that the war for talent is probably the toughest it's ever been. And we're always talking about this. And of course, it is key to our businesses. But obviously, you're in the business of hiring people. And when you're in the startup phase, you're doing more hiring than anybody else as a kind of percentage of your daily activity. So coming into this market today and in the last couple of years, what does it take to attract and retain people today that perhaps you wouldn't have had to think of 10 years ago? Another great question. So there is a bounty of great articles and podcasts such as yours and TED Talks, et cetera, that attempt to prescribe a playbook when it comes to recruiting, attracting, retaining talent. Given my history, my 30-year history, and a lot of that hiring people, especially in the insurance industry, there's some universal truths that I could certainly address. There's a tremendous need for talent in our industry, and we need to do a far better job at attracting that talent to our industry. Number two, we are privileged to have a multi-generational workforce that can be really instrumental in developing and mentoring that talent. Third, we work in an industry that at its core fundamentally solves problems, which means we are seeking people who are intellectually curious. And the last one is that culture matters. Banish has done a great job at attracting and recruiting recognized industry leaders. The next step is that we're focused on augmenting our talented professionals with more emerging leaders. So those emerging leaders would be to put a number, three to 10 years of experience in their particular fields. To do so, we need to provide an environment that the work is interesting. What they're going to be doing is interesting. 
We also have to create an environment of support and flexibility, an environment that produces developmental opportunities. We need to invest in success, not only on Vantage, but of its colleagues, so investing in the colleagues. We need to create a transparent and risk-taking ethos. And finally, we do have to deliver on a promise to build a franchise that empowers its people with effective tools and with decision-making authority buttressed by an entrepreneurial collaborative approach to solving our clients' most complex risks. It's our way of saying or making seeing risks differently by approaching these opportunities and challenges with open curiosity and creativity. Do you think it's really about appealing to someone's intellectual curiosity and that wish to be empowered, to be the sort of underwriter who can say, well, what if we do it this way? Or what if there is a correlation between this and that? Can we get data on that? And then have the sort of people who can go and get that data and then run it against the portfolio and say, wow, if we did it this way, we could improve our loss ratio by five points and no one would really notice. That kind of stuff. That's correct. And I don't want to be terribly secular about it's only our underwriters because we are an entity of multiple professionals. We have talented claims professionals, actuarial, finance, operations, legal, and others. And the reality is, is that what we're trying to build is a firm, a culture where we are intellectually curious, where we're trying to solve for things, innovation, small I or big I, how do we become more efficient? How do we have continuous improvement in our organization? People asking questions that allow us to drill down with additional data to make more informed decisions. That is certainly part of it. I don't want to dismiss the fact that interesting work matters too, that an environment where you're tasked with finding solutions, that inherently has a lot of interest with people, especially if they're intellectually curious. So yeah, we are trying to attract that breed. I suppose you've got often the same financial incentive as, as the peer. You do. You do. I don't think that has changed much. I don't think in the history of time that that has really been eradicated too much. But yes, we do have to make sure that we're compensating our people and rewarding our people for the job that they're doing and the success they're creating for Vantage. That goes without saying. So you've got more than 200 people. So presumably this kind of culture you're trying to build requires an intentionally flatter structure than you would have had you know, back in the old days, back at Reliance 30 years ago. We do have the benefit of having a very flat organization, and that has manifested itself, as I mentioned earlier, in terms of the empowerment. Having underwriters with authority to make decisions without necessarily having to go through four sets of eyes, double or triple sign-offs. Now, granted, we have our referral processes because that's just good hygiene, but we didn't hire our underwriters to create a bureaucratic engagement. We hired our underwriters to effectuate risk assessment, risk evaluation and pricing business that we deem to be suitable and profitable for the organization. So it's more like kind of trust and verify that kind of thing rather than tell them exactly what to do all the time. To a certain extent, you have to do that as a startup. You could spend a lot of time doing an over-examination on every line and find yourself in a very awkward position launching a product that you have very narrow corridor of opportunity. And what do some of these younger employees look for that perhaps people of my generation and your generation didn't look for in the past. Now we read a lot about this kind of Generation Z and millennials, et cetera. The whole of social media is completely alive with this stuff. But in your actual experience, do you have to sort of offer them four-day weeks and all that kind of stuff? I have a hard time generalizing any generation. (laughs) 
I've been privileged to work with multi-generational colleagues. And I think what the new generation brings is an expectation that they want to be productive. And how could I not be interested in a group that wants to be productive, that they want to find solutions, that they want to maybe get more involved in other things. We are trying to create an athletic mindset. That athletic mindset is if you can drop someone into Vantage that has capability to do, say, DNO underwriting, to use an example, but they have an affinity for data and analytics, they have an affinity for marketing, that can we utilize those people to be ambidextrous mentally? Can you do your job and also offer additional assistance or cogent view on other things that we do organizationally? Can you solve for a big issue? We've established an extended leadership team within our organization, even though we're just a group of 230 plus. That has been very impactful, is having more people empowered to help this organization and this franchise grow and flourish. Again, going back to generation, I don't think that this generation should be excluded from some of the generalizations that have made been made about them. I don't want to fall in that trap because I don't necessarily subscribe to that. And presumably you will cast your net a lot wider than we have traditionally as insurers recruiting. Presumably you're looking at all sorts of people, all sorts of different skills that perhaps we wouldn't have looked at before. Agreed. Yes. As we think about risk differently, we should also be thinking about how we're empaneling our firm with colleagues. They may have unique skill sets that may be non-traditional from an insurance standpoint, but very effective in terms of getting things done that we think are important for our franchise. So it sounds like the sort of pitch is, come and work with us, we'll throw you in, and you'll be involved from day one. Perhaps the pitch to me would be, Mark, go and do something really boring for five years, and if you survive that, then we'll let you do something interesting on year six. I don't think that generation will put up with that. I would argue there's probably many generations that wouldn't put up with that. No, I didn't Um, either. Yes, I think that's a, a good characterization, Mark. Well, Alex, I really appreciate you coming on the show. I've really enjoyed talking to you. And it sounds really interesting what you're trying to put together and you're building something. So I'm sure next time we get you back, it will be multiples of 230 staff and all sorts of things. Sounds like you've got a good market to work in. There are lots of particular problems, but it sounds like you've got your head around trying to solve some of them. So I wish you all the best. I think customers and brokers are clamoring for solutions. So if you're in the market, you can provide them with those solutions in a way that's profitable for your shareholders, I'm sure you're going to have lots of success. So good luck. And I hope you'll come on the show at some point in the future to give us an update. Absolutely, Mark. Again, thank you for the privilege to spending time with you. And I look forward to the next time we get to chat. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance podcast is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. 
Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>